Hey, this is Laura Adler, and today we are mapping BPA on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with my friend, Lara Adler. Lara Adler is an environmental toxins expert and educator and a certified holistic health coach who teaches health professionals of all types plus individuals with health-based businesses to better understand the role of environmental chemical exposures in causing or contributing to chronic health issues so they can more comprehensively support the clients and patients they serve. Lara trains practitioners to become experts in everyday toxic exposures so they can improve client outcomes without spending hundreds of hours researching on their own. Combining environmental health education and business consulting, she's helped thousands of health professionals in over 35 countries elevate their skill set, get better results for their clients, and become sought-out leaders in the growing fields of environmental health and detoxification. Lara, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you for having me back. It's so exciting. It's actually been a couple of years since I've had you on the podcast. And we'll certainly link to your two previous and brilliant episodes below in the show notes. But I had to have you back to talk about BPA. There's still a lot of confusion about what it is and its health impact. So let's actually start with the what, Laura. What is BPA and where did it come from? Yeah, so BPA or bisphenol A is one chemical in a family of chemicals called bisphenols, and these are primarily used as plasticizers, and they are used in tens of thousands of different consumer products. They're actually one of the highest production volume chemicals in the world. I think the last count was over 10 million tons were produced annually. So there is a lot of BPA out in the world. It was actually first developed in the late 1890s. So this is, even though we're more aware of BPA now, it has actually been around for a very, very long time. It didn't really get its use in commercial products until the 40s and 50s when it was discovered that it produced a really strong plastic substrate that mirrored glass in its translucency, and that's polycarbonate plastic. And so its use sort of commercially took off around that time. And we have all been exposed to, you know, pretty regular levels of bisphenols since then. And I think the thing that's concerning about it, and concerning to me, certainly, is that like, we've known that bisphenols act as artificial estrogens, 
since the 1930s. So again, also not new information. Right. Really fascinating. And you're talking about the class of chemicals. We tend to focus on that BPA. And I know people even use it as marketing, like BPA-free, but then it has another bisphenol. Do I have that right? Yeah. there's Like I said, it's one chemical in a family of chemicals. So there are sister chemicals like BPS and BPF are two of the more commonly used ones. And these chemicals all share the same properties. Research into bisphenol S and F, like Sam and Frank, have found that they are just as bad, if not worse, from a endocrine disrupting capacity as BPA, which they were seeking to replace. So in this space, we refer to these instances as regrettable substitutions. It's a substitution where we're swapping one compound for another, only to find out after the fact that, oops, it's just as bad or worse. Yeah, that happens a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, it really does. It really, really does. So you mentioned the artificial estrogens and our first podcast together, which we'll link to, was about obesogens. If we head over to the center part of the matrix and we start to think into like, why do we care about this? Like, so what? What are our so what's that we're thinking about from a physiological and even psychological perspective? Right. Well, I mean, certainly from a physiological perspective, BPA, unfortunately, or bisphenols, I should say, most of the research is on BPA. But like I said, the research into the replacements is finding that they have very similar results of exposure. And so when we're looking at these bisphenol studies, we're seeing effects ranging from alterations in our hunger signaling hormones, so leptin and ghrelin. In animal models, BPA has been found to disrupt this signaling. We have found that extraordinarily low levels of BPA exposure has linked to insulin resistance. It's linked to obesity, diabetes, type 2 diabetes specifically, And a long list of developmental issues in children. It's linked to leaky gut and an inflammation of the gut and disruption of the gut microbiota. So like we have a very long list of health effects that we're seeing from these very low levels of exposure to these bisphenol compounds to which we are all exposed. So when we think about it, when I listen to you, Laura, part of how I'm thinking is our exposure to these bisphenols is a trigger or one triggering agent for these endocrine disrupting and gut disrupting disease states that we experience. What's the ability to mitigate or modulate the exposure? Where does that fall? Or is it a dose makes the poison situation, which is a term or a phrase I know you have opinions about, but like, how do we think about that? Okay. So I'll start with the first and then go to the second. So the first is this idea that the dose makes the poison, which is foundational to the field of toxicology, which is the scientific discipline that determines whether or not something is safe or not. And the problem here is that this concept of the dose makes the poison, which was, you know, essentially rooted, coined by Paracelsus in the 16th century, in the 1500s, the journal Nature actually did an article on this a number of years ago, and they referred to it as the dogma that the toxicology 
discipline adheres to is that the dose makes the poison. And it is, and I'm borrowing your language here, Andrea, is that it's true, but partial, right? It is not an absolutely true concept that the dose makes the poison. And certainly when we're looking at things like radiation, that absolutely follows this linear dose response curve, this very predictable dose response where more is worse and less is not as bad. And when it comes to things that are hormonally active to the endocrine system and chemicals, substances, synthetic and man-made that can disrupt or mimic the role of our natural hormones, that concept of the dose makes the poison kind of implodes. And so what we've seen is that when researchers are looking at these extraordinarily low levels far below the levels that the discipline of toxicology explores, we actually see that's where the more profound and pronounced health effects lie, are in those really low exposures. And if we think about it, logically, it becomes very clear as to why, because our physiology is already attuned to respond to these infinitesimally small levels of natural hormones in the body. Like that's the frequency that our own physiology is attuned to. And so when we have, you know, synthetic hormones or chemicals that mimic our natural hormones or interfere with hormone signaling at levels that are comparable to what the human body is used to receiving, that's where we're running into these problems. Yeah. I always think of the hormones and the neurohormones as like magic sprinkles. They're impacted. They're so delicate. They're impacted by everything else. So if there's disrupt at any physiological level, there's likely going to be an influence on those magic sprinkles, right? Like they're so, you know, delicately influenced. Like I said, you're using the term mimic and hormone signaling. Can you talk a little bit about how the bisphenols mimic hormones? Yeah. So at least as it pertains to estrogen, for example, the chemical molecule of bisphenol A is pretty close to, for example, that estradiol molecule in shape. And so if we think about it, like, you know, I think the analogy that's often used with hormones is that there's this lock and key mechanism, right? And so we have these hormone receptors that are our locks, and then we have these keys, which are the actual hormones that they fit into that lock and that lock only, and they turn open or close or turn on or turn off hormonal signaling. Well, if you think of these chemicals that have a similar shape, it's like having a key that's like not exactly a match to the lock, but it's close enough that it still opens it. And so that's what we're seeing is we're seeing that these endocrine disrupting chemicals can essentially mimic a molecule of a thyroid hormone or a estrogen hormone, for example, and they can essentially be mimics. They can, you know, dock in those receptor slots, turn on or turn off signaling that otherwise isn't controlled by you know, our body through natural hormones. And so this interference is what can lead to some of these challenges. And so earlier I had mentioned that, you know, BPA exposure is linked to insulin resistance. There was a study in mice that looked at BPA levels a thousand fold less. So at doses, exposures that are a thousand fold less 
than what the EPA has found in their low L, their lowest observed adverse effect level, which is the one of the points that is sought after, so to speak, within traditional toxicology studies. So there's the low L and the no L. Traditional toxicology stops looking once they find the no L, which is the no observed adverse effect level, meaning they're not seeing any adverse effects. So they go, okay, we'll build in a factor of safety for vulnerable populations and then call it a day. But they don't actually look at those levels below. And when we have environmental epidemiologists and researchers that are studying these endocrine disrupting chemicals, they are looking at those levels. And so if we're seeing altered blood glucose leading to insulin resistance in mice at levels that are a thousandfold less, not protective. Those safety thresholds are not protective. Yeah, that makes sense. And we want our own hormones doing their job in the docks, not if we think of it like a game of like ring around the rosy, the, <laughs> you're being knocked out of the chair and the chemicals taking that spot and causing disruption downstream. Yeah. And, you know, as a general rule, we do not test chemicals on humans. That is considered unethical. And so generally speaking, what we're doing in this space is looking at animal studies, trying to tease out cause and mechanism and all of those factors. And then we turn to the human population epidemiological data and are looking for where are we seeing these similar effects that we're seeing in rodent studies for populations that have similar body burdens of these compounds. And so what I think is so interesting is there was a study a number of years ago that did actually test BPA on humans. This is really rare. It's very unusual for a study to test a chemical directly on humans. And the way that they were able, the researchers were able to kind of get around those ethical hurdles was they were saying, well, we are exposing people to a single oral or sublingual dose of BPA at the level that the FDA says is safe. And what they found is that those single oral or sublingual dose altered insulin resistance in those subjects relative to people who got the placebo. Wow. Yeah. So it's incredible to think about this. And I want to kind of consider like the then what, like where are our exposures? And I know you're an expert at helping us as practitioners think about what we do with our client populations, but where are we still looking at these exposures? Because I'm assuming that as the marketing has shifted and people are removing BPA, that it's still hidden in, in a lot of places. I think, honestly, the most concerning place is in thermal paper, so cash register receipts. And this is obviously more of a concern for people that are working in any kind of retail establishment where they are handling cash register receipts all day, that there have been studies showing spikes in urinary bisphenol levels during shift work. And so the reason why that is more concerning to me than, say, for example, the BPA that's found in canned foods, although that's still a concern, is that in canned foods, in plastics, the BPA is somewhat bound up in the matrix of the material. And so there are certainly things that will increase leaching, but it requires a little bit of a nudge 
to release those compounds into the food or liquid or whatever. With thermal paper, it's free BPA. It's a powder that's just sprayed on the paper. So if you close your eyes and you feel a notebook paper or a printer paper and thermal paper, aside from the thinness of thermal paper, it feels powdery. It feels different. That powder is just bisphenol A or S or F. So that's actually more concerning to me because it's not bound. And so we are exposed to free BPA through the handling of cash register receipts. There was a study that looked at handling of cash register receipts alongside the use of hand sanitizer. And that alcohol in the hand sanitizer can break down some of that fatty acid layer in our skin, which can increase the absorption of these compounds, these BPA molecules. And so really, again, the bigger issue is for people that are working in an occupational setting, handling thermal paper. It's not just working at a grocery store. Think of people who are working in the airline industry, handling airline tickets and baggage tags. That's all thermal paper. Movie tickets, concert tickets, it's all thermal paper. And so that's one of those areas where I think as individuals, we should just be declining cash register receipts, requesting an emailed receipt if that option is available, encouraging companies to make that option available if it's not. So that would be sort of my number one place of exposure that I think is meaningful that a lot of people overlook. And is anything being done about that? Like, I mean, I, I'm aware of our attention to our plastic bottles that we're drinking out of and our canned foods, as you mentioned. Is anybody lobbying against the free BPA? Yeah, I mean, there are large retailers. I can't remember off the top of my head which ones are, but there are large retailers that are actually moving away from thermal paper entirely and going back to printer ink. Right? So thermal paper doesn't actually utilize any ink, which makes it great because there's no ink cartridge to replace in the cash register receipt unit at the checkout. Right, So it's one less thing for somebody to have to manage. And so there are companies that are starting to actually the state of Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken, has actually banned the use of bisphenols in thermal paper. Now, the question then becomes, did they specify only bisphenol A? And are they just replacing it with bisphenol S and F, which are, you know, readily available replacement compounds in thermal printing machines? So, yeah, there are companies that are moving back to ink. And you can feel the difference when you handle a ink printed receipt versus a thermal printed receipt. So Laura, we'll link not only to your previous podcast, but also to your website and your training of practitioners. But I'm wondering if you can share with us one of the biggest things that you found was potent that we as practitioners can share with our clients or where we can make the biggest difference in their lives as we're helping them being our clients and patients on their healing journeys in relation to this topic of bisphenol exposure. Yeah. So there's actually two things I'll say there. The first is we really want to encourage people, obviously, to avoid thermal papers, to minimize the consumption of canned foods, particularly canned foods that are heat packaged. So canned soups, for example, canned beans, anything that's heat processed. So like canned sodas are going to have less bisphenol migration than a canned soup 
for example. So one, minimizing canned foods. Other kind of sneaky places that BPA is found can be in the lid of your travel to go coffee cup. So taking that lid off, if you have to get a hot beverage on the go, those are simple recommendations. But honestly, I think the number one thing for practitioners to share as a point of empowerment to their clients and patients is that the half-life of BPA in the body is approximately 6 to 12 hours. It is metabolized very quickly, which is great news because it means that if we practice these avoidance behaviors, we can dramatically lower the amount of BPA that's in our body at any given time. The 2003-2004 NHANES data shows that 93% of people have metabolites BPA in their urine. My hunch is that figure has probably grown in the 20 years since then. (laughs) You know, what that tells me is that we are taking in these exposures faster than our bodies have the time to metabolize them, which means that it doesn't matter if we're metabolizing it in six to 12 hours, if we're taking it in faster, because the levels at the end of the day are constant. So that little nugget of that short half-life, it doesn't mean that it's not problematic in the short time that it's in the body, it still is. But what this tells us is that when we practice avoidance behaviors, we can have an immediate reduction, see immediate reduction in bisphenol compounds when we do that. Mm, So brilliant. As always, Lara, thank you so much for joining me today. You are so welcome. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our full body systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.